Chapter 50, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 50, Part 1. Description of Arabia and its Inhabitants. Birth, Character, and Doctrine of Muhammad. He preaches at Mecca, flies to Medina, propagates his religion by the sword, voluntary or reluctant submission of the Arabs, his death and successors, the claims and fortunes of Ali and his descendants. After pursuing above six hundred years the fleeting Caesars of Constantinople and Germany, I descend, in the reign of Heraclius, on the eastern borders of the Greek monarchy. While the state was exhausted by the Persian War, and the church was distracted by the Nestorian and Monophysite sects, Muhammad, with the sword in one hand and the Koran in the other, erected his throne on the ruins of Christianity and of Rome. The genius of the Arabian prophet, the manners of his nation, the spirit of his religion, involved the causes of the decline and fall of the Eastern Empire, and our eyes are currently intent on one of the most memorable revolutions which have impressed a new and lasting character on the nations of the globe. In the vacant space between Persia, Syria, Egypt, and Ethiopia, the Arabian Peninsula may be conceived as a triangle of spacious but irregular dimensions. From the northern point of Beles on the Euphrates, a line of 1,500 miles is terminated by the Straits of Babelmandeb in the land of frankincense. About half this length may be allowed for the middle breadth, from east to west, from Basra to Suez, from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea. The sides of the triangle are gradually enlarged, and the southern basis presents a front of a thousand miles to the Indian Ocean. The entire surface of the peninsula exceeds in fourfold proportion that of Germany or France but the far greater part has been justly stigmatized with the epithets of the stony and of the sandy. Even the wilds of Tartary are decked, by the hand of nature, with lofty trees and luxuriant herbage, and the lonesome traveler derives a sort of comfort and society from the presence of vegetable life. But in the dreary waste of Arabia, a boundless level of sand is intersected by sharp and naked mountains and the face of the desert, without shade or shelter, is scorched by the direct and intense rays of a tropical sun. Instead of refreshing breezes, the winds, particularly from the southwest, diffuse a noxious and even deadly vapor. The hillocks of sand, which they alternately raise or scatter, are compared to the billows of the ocean, and the whole caravans, whole armies, have been lost and buried in the whirlwind. The common benefits of water, are an object of desire and contest, and such is the scarcity of wood that some art is requisite to preserve and propagate the element of fire. Arabia is destitute of navigable rivers, which fertilize the soil and convey its produce to the adjacent regions. The torrents that fall from the hills are imbibed by the thirsty earth. The rare and hardy plants, the tamarind or the acacia, that strike their roots into the clefts of the rocks, are nourished by the dews of the night. A scanty supply of rain is collected in cisterns and aqueducts. The wells and springs 
are the secret treasure of the desert, and the pilgrim of Mecca, after many a dry and sultry march, is disgusted by the taste of the waters which have rolled over a bed of sulphur or salt. Such is the general and genuine picture of the climate of Arabia. The experience of evil enhances the value of any local or partial enjoyments. A shady grove, a green pasture, a stream of fresh water, are sufficient to attract a colony of sedentary Arabs to the fortunate spots, which can afford food and refreshment to themselves and their cattle, and which encourage their industry in the cultivation of the palm tree and the vine. The high lands that border on the Indian Ocean are distinguished by the superior plenty of wood and water. The air is more temperate, the fruits are more delicious, the animals and the human race are more numerous. The fertility of the soil invites and rewards the toil of the husbandman, and the peculiar gifts of frankincense and coffee have attracted in different ages the merchants of the world. If it be compared with the rest of the peninsula, this sequestered region may truly deserve the appellation of the happy, and the splendid coloring of fancy and fiction has been suggested by contrast and countenanced by distance. It was for this earthly paradise that nature had reserved her choicest favors and her most curious workmanship. The incompatible blessings of luxury and innocence were ascribed to the natives. The soil was impregnated with gold and gems, and both the land and sea were taught to exhale the odors of aromatic sweets. This division of the sandy, the stony, and the happy, so familiar to the Greeks and Latins, is unknown to the Arabians themselves. And it is of singular enough that a country whose language and inhabitants have ever been the same should scarcely retain a vestige of its ancient geography. The maritime districts of Bahrain and Oman are opposite to the realm of Persia. The kingdom of Yemen displays the limits, or at least the situation, of Arabia Felix. The name of Neged is extended over the inland space, and the birth of Mohammed has illustrated the province of Hejaz, along the coast of the Red Sea. The measure of population is regulated by the means of subsistence, and the inhabitants of this vast peninsula might be outnumbered by the subjects of a fertile and industrious province. Along the shores of the Persian Gulf, of the ocean, and even of the Red Sea, the Ichthyophagi, or fish-eaters, continue to wander in quest of their precarious food. In this primitive and abject state, which ill deserves the name of society, the human brute, without arts or laws, and almost without sense or language, is poorly distinguished from the rest of the animal creation. Generations and ages might roll away in silent oblivion, and the helpless savage was restrained from multiplying his race by the once in pursuits which confined his existence to the narrow margin of the seacoast. But in an early period of antiquity, the great body of the Arabs had emerged from this scene of misery, and, as the naked wilderness could not maintain a people of hunters, they rose at once to the more secure and plentiful condition of the pastoral life. The same life is uniformly pursued by the roving tribes of the desert, and in the portrait of the modern Bedouins we may trace the features of their ancestors, who, in the age of Moses or Mohammed, dwelt under similar tents, and conducted their horses and camels and sheep to the same springs and the same pastures. Our toil is lessened, and our wealth is increased, by our dominion over the useful animals, and the Arabian shepherd 
had acquired the absolute possession of a faithful friend and a laborious slave. Arabia, in the opinion of the naturalist, is the genuine and original country of the horse, the climate most propitious not indeed to the size, but to the spirit and swiftness of that generous animal. The merit of the barb, the Spanish and the English breed, is derived from a mixture of Arabian blood, and the Bedouins preserve, with superstitious care, the honors and memory of the purest race. The males are sold at a high price, but the females are seldom alienated, and the birth of a noble foal was estimated among the tribes as a subject of joy and mutual congratulation. These horses are educated in the tents, among the children of the Arabs, with a tender familiarity which trains them in the habits of gentleness and attachment. They are accustomed only to walk and to gallop. Their sensations are not blunted by the incessant abuse of the spur and the whip. Their powers are reserved for the moments of flight and pursuit. But no sooner do they feel the touch of the hand or the stirrup than they dart away with the swiftness of the wind. And if their friend be dismounted in the rapid career, they instantly stop till he has recovered his seat. In the sands of Africa and Arabia, the camel is a sacred and precious gift. That strong and patient beast of burden can perform, without eating or drinking, a journey of several days. And a reservoir of fresh water is preserved in a large bag, a fifth stomach of the animal, whose body is imprinted with the marks of servitude. The larger breed is capable of transporting a weight of a thousand pounds, and the dromedary, of a lighter and more active frame, outstrips the fleetest courser in the race. Alive or dead, almost every part of the camel is serviceable to man. Her milk is plentiful and nutritious. The young and tender flesh has the taste of veal. A valuable salt is extracted from the urine. The dung supplies the deficiency of fuel. And the long hair, which falls every year and is renewed, is coarsely manufactured into the garments, the furniture, and the tents of the Bedouins. In the rainy season they consume the rare and insufficient herbage of the desert. During the heats of summer and the scarcity of winter they remove their encampments to the seacoast, the hills of Yemen, or the neighborhood of the Euphrates, and have often extorted the dangerous license of visiting the banks of the Nile and the villages of Syria and Palestine. The life of a wandering Arab is a life of danger and distress. And though sometimes, by rapine or exchange, he may appropriate the fruits of industry, a private citizen in Europe is in the possession of more solid and pleasing luxury than the proudest emir who marches in the field at the head of ten thousand horse. Yet an essential difference may be found between the hordes of Scythia and the Arabian tribes, since many of the latter were collected into towns and employed in the labors of trade and agriculture. A part of their time and industry was still devoted to the management of their cattle. They mingled in peace and war with their brethren of the desert, and the Bedouins derived from their useful intercourse some supply of their wants and some rudiments of art and knowledge. Among the forty-two cities of Arabia, enumerated by Abu Feda, the most ancient and populous were situate in the happy Yemen. The towers of Sana and the marvelous reservoir of Mareb were constructed by the kings of the Homerites, but their profound luster was eclipsed by the prophetic glories of Medina and Mecca, near the Red Sea, and at a distance from each other of two hundred and seventy miles. The last of these holy places was known to the Greeks under the name of Makaraba, 
and the termination of the word is expressive of its greatness, which has not indeed, in the most flourishing period, exceeded the size and populousness of Marseilles. Some latent motive, perhaps of superstition, must have impelled the founders in the choice of a most unpromising situation. They erected their habitations of mud or stone in a plain about two miles long and one mile broad, at the foot of three barren mountains. The soil is a rock. The water, even of the holy well of Zemzem, is bitter or brackish. The pastures are remote from the city, and grapes are transported above seventy miles from the gardens of Taif. The fame and spirit of the Koreishites, who reigned in Mecca, were conspicuous among the Arabian tribes. But their ungrateful soil refused the labors of agriculture, and their position was favorable to the enterprises of trade. By the seaport of Geddah, at a distance of only forty miles, they maintained an easy correspondence with Abyssinia, and that Christian kingdom afforded the first refuge of the disciples of Mohammed. The treasures of Africa were conveyed over the peninsula to Gera, or Katif, in the province of Bahrain, a city built, as it is said, of rock salt by the Chaldean exiles, and from thence, with the native pearls of the Persian Gulf, they were floated on rafts to the mouth of the Euphrates. Mecca is placed almost at an equal distance, a month's journey, between Yemen on the right and Syria on the left hand. The former was the winter, the latter the summer of the station of her caravans, and their seasonable arrival relieved the ships of India from the tedious and troublesome navigation of the Red Sea. In the markets of Sana and Merab, in the harbors of Oman and Aden, the camels of the Koreshites were laden with a precious cargo of aromatics, and a supply of corn and manufactures were purchased in the fairs of Basra and Damascus. The lucrative exchange diffused plenty and riches in the streets of Mecca, and the noblest of her sons united the love of arms with the profession of merchandise. The perpetual independence of the Arabs has been the theme of praise among the strangers and natives, and the arts of controversy transform this singular event into a prophecy and a miracle in favor of the posterity of Ismael. Some exceptions that can neither be dissembled nor eluded render this mode of reasoning as indiscreet as it is superfluous. The kingdom of Yemen has been successively subdued by the Abyssinians, the Persians, the sultans of Egypt, and the Turks. The holy cities of Mecca and Medina have repeatedly bowed under a Scythian tyrant, and the Roman province of Arabia embraced the peculiar wilderness in which Ismail and his sons must have pitched their tents in the face of their brethren. Yet these exceptions are temporary or local, the body of the nation has escaped the yoke of the most powerful monarchies, the arms of Sesostris and Cyrus, of Pompey and Trajan, could never achieve the conquest of Arabia. The present sovereign of the Turks may exercise a shadow of jurisdiction, but his pride is reduced to solicit the friendship of a people, whom it is dangerous to provoke and fruitless to attack. The obvious causes of their freedom are inscribed on the character and country of the Arabs, Many ages before Muhammad, their intrepid valor had been severely felt by their natives in offensive and defensive war. The patient and active virtues of a soldier are insensibly nursed in the habits and discipline of a pastoral life. The care of the sheep and camels is abandoned to the women of the tribe, but the martial youth under the banner of the emir is ever on horseback and in the field 
to practice the exercise of the bow, the javelin, and the scimitar. The long memory of their independence is the firmest pledge of its perpetuity, and succeeding generations are animated to prove their descent and to maintain their inheritance. Their domestic feuds are suspended on the approach of a common enemy, and in their last hostility against the Turks, the caravan of Mecca was attacked and pillaged by fourscore thousands of the Confederates. When they advance to battle, the hope of victory is in the front. In the rear, the assurance of a retreat. Their horses and camels, who in eight or ten days can perform a march of four or five hundred miles, disappear before the conqueror. The secret waters of the desert elude his search, and his victorious troops are consumed with thirst and hunger and fatigue in the pursuit of an invisible foe who scorns his efforts and safely reposes in the heart of the burning solitude. The arms and deserts of the Bedouins are not only the safeguards of their own freedom, but the barriers also of the happy Arabia, whose inhabitants, remote from war, are enervated by the luxury of the soil and climate. The legions of Augustus melted away into seas and lassitude, and it is only by a naval power that the reduction of Yemen has been successfully attempted. When Mohammed erected this holy standard, that kingdom was a province of the Persian Empire, yet seven princes of the Homerites still reigned in the mountains, and the vice-regent of Kosaris was tempted to forget his distant country and his unfortunate master. The historians of the age of Justinian represent the state of the independent Arabs, who were divided by interest or affection in the long quarrel of the East. The tribe of Gassan was allowed to encamp on the Scythian territory. The princes of Hira were permitted to form a city about forty miles to the southward of the ruin of Babylon. Their service in the field was speedy and victorious, but their friendship was venal, their faith inconstant, their enmity capricious. It was an easier task to excite than to disarm these roving barbarians, and in the familiar intercourse of war they learned to see and to despise the splendid weakness both of Rome and of Persia. From Mecca to the Euphrates, the Arabian tribes were confounded by the Greeks and Latins under the general appellation of Saracens, a name which every Christian mouth has been taught to pronounce with terror and abhorrence. End of chapter 50, part 1